Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, broadband and internet infrastructure pioneer Lorenz Glatz sharing his inspiration of the first time he connected to a California computer from Austria. I was looking at the screen like, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening? I locked out immediately, went over to the admin and told him, well, I think it just created a massive telephone costs, right? Um, I just told him what I did. And he looked at me, shrugged and said, well, that's the internet, just go ahead. <laughs> I knew from that moment on, whatever I do, I'd have to do something about the internet. And Glatz did, working with Sudir to build Liberty Global in Europe then rising to CTO of Cable Deutschland. His leadership philosophy? To explain where you want to go, why you want to go there, right? And to rally the team behind that vision. And then to give them the freedom to work within that framework, to give them the freedom to be creative, to work toward that vision. Now, as an advisor and investor, Glatz looks for innovation relating to the economy going digital. We are in the weird situation that as mankind, we're so productive that we could actually, all of us could work so much less and still produce everything we need. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Uh, hello, Lawrence. It's wonderful to have you on, on the show, Cracking the Code. It's been an absolute privilege for me to get to know you over these several decades. I must say it's hard to believe that it is really that long, but it is, believe it or not. And both of us have grown older, but uh, I'm privileged to uh, to call you a friend and esteemed industry colleague, because both of us have had an incredible journey professionally. I've had also the privilege of getting to know you personally and your life journey. As you know, cracking the code is... Uh, is all about paying it forward to the next generation of leaders and sharing the life lessons that all of us have learned through our journey, both personally and professionally. We're going to cover a few things around technology, being technologists always on these kind of shows. But Lawrence, I'd like to start initially with welcoming you to the show. We typically start with our guests talking more about what their journey was like starting uh, in the early days of childhood. So walk us, walk us a little bit through that journey for our audience, if you will. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me in the first place today, right? I mean, it's an honor to be on, on your podcast. Um, as you said, we're going to go back a long time and a long way, right? We've had um, our ups and downs, but um, it's just amazing um, how our friendship has evolved and has uh, materialized over, over the last few years. And I'm, I'm really honored to be on your on your podcast. And I've been listening to a lot of the episodes that you've um, already recorded, um, which is actually great. I love it. It's really good. <laughs> so actually, I, I saw that question coming, right? <laughs> and I started to think about it, right? I mean, what is it? what is it that in my past and in my history that made me the person I am. And I think I have to go digress a little bit into, into history because I think most of your um, interview partners so far have had a U.S. background, right? And I don't. I'm, I'm from Austria, um, the small little country in the middle of Europe. And it's not Australia, right? Some people think it's Australia. <laughs> It doesn't have kangaroos, right? Um, that's kind of it. the the t-shirts in Vienna, right? Austria, we don't have kangaroos to make sure it's not being confused. Um, so that was, um, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is that 
as everybody, right? I mean, there's a long history of generations before us, and if we don't screw up the planet too badly, a long history of generations behind us, right? And we, we need to be seen in this context. I think that's at least what I believe. And if I take a look at, at the history of my country in the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, we were part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, which currently would be um, Austria, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, parts of um, Romania, parts of Poland, um, um, Slovenia, um, most of Croatia, right? All that was um, was one country. And after World War One, um, it broke apart. And then the peace treaty of um, Saint-Germain, which was the peace treaty for Austria, um, basically all these countries broke away and became independent, had their own thing. And it literally says, and the rest is Austria. So the reason I'm bringing this up was that um, after World War One, everybody uh, across the political spectrum in Austria said, well, actually, we should be part of Germany, right? This doesn't make sense, right? This just doesn't make sense. We should be part of Germany. And uh, it was forbidden by the peace treaty. Um, so we weren't allowed to be part of Germany. And then we went through this um, turbulent time um, of this massive economic recession, the depression, right? Um, we went through um, the rise of fascism in Austria. Um, mm. And in 1938, we were um, enacted by Nazi Germany. Um, and a lot of people actually, um, because of the history, um, had the feeling this wasn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Because this little Austria thing was just odd. And then we had um, World War II with all these atrocities, right? And you have to be clear, right, as opposed to, to American, we were on the bad side of history, right? I mean, right. My country was um, part of the, um, the countries and of Nazi Germany that was doing the atrocities we talked about, right? I mean, right. this is, uh, we were the bad guys, right? Um, not everybody, not every single individual, but as a country. And uh, as an example, right, in Austria, the, the percentage of people being part of the Nazi party was higher than in Germany. Right. So Austria was even more into Nazism than Germany was. And on the other side, um, the very small little faction of resistance was um, was in um, was stronger in Austria, too, than it was in Germany. But um, the reason I'm bringing all this up was after World War Two. Right. This um, this mindset um, didn't just magically disappear. Right. Um, because the war was over. Right. It was the same people around and um, and, and the movement started and. Um, um, democratization started, right, um, thanks to um, the victory of the Allies. But while many people felt liberated in 1945, right, many people felt they were defeated. Right? That is um, that is something to be clear. And the reason I'm bringing all this up was, and now I'm kind of coming, I'm closing the closing the circle to my own personal history. I was born in 1969, right, which is the 60s is um, obviously um, something, at least in my mindset, that is complex completely different from um, Nazi Germany and um, the atrocities, <laughs> the world war and the different, like, like a different millennia, right? But in reality, it's only 24 years, right? 24 years after World War II ended, right? With people that played important roles in Nazi Germany still in charge in the country, right? Not, not the top ranks of politi politics, but in, in the fabric of society, in the fabric of what it is, right? And here it was, um, 1969, um, um, two students from the countryside had uh, met in Vienna, uh, and Vienna is like this massive capital. I mean, it's um, about every fifth person in Austria lives in Vienna. It's like the United States having um, a capital with um, 60 to 80 million people, right? It's like it's massive in comparison to the size of the country. So these two um, young students, right, both 20, come from the countryside, come to Vienna to study at university, fall in love with each other, both from fairly, you could probably say, conservative backgrounds, right? Um, uh, one more on the conservative side, more on the social democratic side, but typically not not like the progressive, um, want to change the world type of people. Right? 
Um, so they come to Vienna, fall in love, right? And are 20 and haven't got a clue how biology works, right? And I'm the accident. Um, <laughs> and, and these two people, right? My parents, obviously, um, they've been, um, they kind of got absorbed in the 68 student movement, right? When, when it was swiping, was swiping through the continent. And, um, and the reason I started with the history is that um, it kind of tells you what this was about, right? This, this movement was about kind of cleaning up with that history of anti-Semitism, of hierarchy, of patriarchy, right? Um, they were kind of trying to change the world for better in rebellion to, to that continuity that um, within society had been there from the Nazi days, right? And this is, this is the, the environment that I came into, right? My parents were very young. They kind of evolved to um, become typical middle-class um, uh, family. They got divorced um, fairly soon when I was, uh, was a kid, and my, my father remarried, and my, my mother didn't. So I kind of have three parents, and they've all been middle-class, right? I mean, my father and my stepmother have become teachers. Um, my uh, mother was uh, working in the social ministry. Um, so this, this is what came out of that. But what, what, I was, what I was given, if you will, when I was a kid was this strong belief that um, we can make the world a better place, right? Um, we, we can, this, this positive side and, and also lightness to things, which I attribute to the fact that they're both 2021. They were 21 when I was born, right? They were young. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you're younger, right, you don't think about things as much. You just do them, right? <laughs> so I guess this, this lightness is something that has transcended to me as well. But um, but the big thing I think was this this feeling for um, for justice, this feeling for um, for equal opportunity, this feeling for um, for um, fairness, right? Mm-hmm. That everybody has the right and has the, the should have the opportunity to 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 be themselves and to um, be their own thing. Which again, to me, um, coming up and kind of growing up was completely natural. But um, in hindsight, and considering the history of my country, it was not. Right. Um, and in fact, in, in current politics, you do see this um, spinning around a little bit again to um, to our ugly past. But um, but this is kind of um, where, where I wanted to start, because it kind of sets the stage for uh, me being part of um, generations and hopefully um, um, the beginning of future generations. But um, this is where, where I kind of where I come from. And this is kind of this um, this struggle that um, that defined um, when I was a kid. Right. What. Um, what my social environment um, was like. But at the same time, uh, it was very protected um, social security-wise and otherwise. Um, the 70s was still an era of, um, of things improving massively for most people. Um, so this is kind of where um, where I was coming from. So this is kind of thing important to, to my future career to, to understand that starting point. I mean, and another thing that that I think is important is that when I was um, in my teens, I was playing a lot of um, team handball. It's not not popular known in, in the U.S., but it's a it's kind of um, it's kind of um, basketball with goals, right? You play the ball with the hand and you try to score goals like in soccer, right? It's just um, uh, it's pretty popular over here. Uh, but the important thing is not so much the sports. The important thing was a team sport, mm-hmm. something you do together, and you learn that the only way to succeed is to work together. Right? And you get your strengths, your weaknesses, your different positions and your different um, styles. But to be able to to succeed, um, to win and also to have fun, right? You have to be a team. You have to work together. Uh, I think that that's another thing that kind of um, defined my youth and would then later on evolve into what I did. That comes to mind when you ask about uh, my, my childhood, and my background and what, what is the foundation of who I am or who I became. Thank you for sharing not just that bit of history, but the context of 
where you grew up in your childhood days. Clearly, that must have been a very interesting time. And Austria is a beautiful place. Uh, I've had the privilege of not just being there, uh, also living there for a little bit in the 80s. And so share with us, Lawrence, a little bit about uh, what it was like uh, with mom and dad growing up with your siblings. I mean, what was life like for Lawrence class growing up? Like I said, it was it was a protected middle class life in uh, in, a, in a wealthy country, right? I mean, this is uh, this is what it is. My my, my father and my stepmother have both been parents, right? Um, and as opposed to the U.S. today, you could um, have make a decent living out of being a parent, a teacher, right? So that was that was um, one thing. My mother had um, a decent job in, in in government as well, so it, it was protected, and I was focusing on on studying, but. Um, in, in high school, but it was also about doing all these other things, right? Being active in the peace movement, um, playing team handball, going out with friends, doing things some teenagers do, right? Um, so I think that that was um, that was part of that. And there was always this um, curiosity about natural sciences, physics in my case in particular, which I then later on went on to study at the university. But um, so it was it was a mixture computers actually, um, um, home computers. I had this um, Sinclair static spectrum, which was this UK computer, and it was like. Damn, I spent um, days and nights on this coding on basic um, and assembler, right, on this little box, um, which was um, everybody else thought it was crazy because obviously it was connected to a television back then. It was no computer screen, right? You had this little box and you connected it to the TV. And I, I, I was the, the happiest guy when I finally got the old television that got booted out of the living room, right, um, with black and white, and I got it into my room. So um, not to watch television, right, but to, to have a computer screen. <laughs> and I was I was spending lots of time there. Yeah, like coding, cracking games was an important thing back then because there was still copyright protected, right? And if you wanted to copy them, they were on small little um, cassettes, um, these um, things that you copy them, um, and then you had to crack them to make sure you could actually play them or use them or whatever it was, right? So I, I spent lots of time on that, which which actually was my my biggest hobby um, outside of um, playing handball and um, and um, going to school. Those two handball and the thing. Yeah. Um, or working on my computer and um, experimenting was a big part of what I was doing, which later on actually, um, um, and I think that's also part of, um, of the definition of my career. I went to university, I got a master's degree in physics, right? And at the university, I also, I also started to deal with this weird thing called the internet. It was like the very early 90s. And I still remember a very defining moment. I spent a year in the United States in, at the University of California in Santa Cruz. There was this weird thing there on campus. must have been 91, right? So before the internet was public knowledge. So, and it was this weird thing on campus. You went to the PC lab, right? Which was fine because not everybody had a PC. So you went there and you had this weird command to connect to some computer to do something called email, right? It was strange. Um, but anyway, so the, the major the major campus and university information was on, uh, on email, right? Whatever that was. And, and the command you used from the PC lab to get to that computer um, to read your emails was a specific command. I came back to Vienna and then I got told that to connect to the local Vienna server, I could use the same command. I thought, that's strange, right? And I was sitting at the university and I was typing in the command to connect to the United States server in Santa Cruz immediately after I came back. And like magic, I could connect to a computer at the other end of the world. It's completely natural to us now, right? But back then, right, I was looking at the screen and thinking, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening? I locked out immediately, went over to the admin and told him, well, I think it just incurred a massive telephone costs, right? Um, I just told him what I did. And he looked at me, shrugged and said, well, that's the internet, just go ahead. <laughs> mm -hmm. And 
I knew from that moment on, whatever I do, I'd have to do something about the internet, right? Something with the internet. Whatever my job is, I have to have a computer on my desk that is connected to this network, right? This is uh, that moment. It was that was the defining moment of my professional career, right? Screw physics, right? Internet. That's the thing. Uh, and that's what I went on to do, right? And that's um, um, not too far, uh, not too long after that, our paths crossed and we had um, part of the very remarkable journey together. It's fascinating to hear you share that story and also that interesting nugget of how there was a life-changing moment there for you. Clearly, you know, you've you've done exceptionally well as a leader. At what point, Lawrence, during this journey that you started to feel like, you know, leadership is something that you're going to start having to worry about think about you know in your in your professional career and something that you would naturally be able to eventually practice and do do well at that's a good question because i can't really pinpoint a moment right i've been um dating back to 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 kindergarten right i've, I've been I seem to have been um, um, an alpha kid, right? Poor other kids, right? Um, so um, that, that and that seems to, to kind of um, be kind of a red, um, a continuing thing throughout my life. Uh, but I, I never actually aspired to be a leader. And in fact, coming back to the discussion with earlier, I have I always had had the difficulty with the word leader because in, in German it's called Führer, right? Anführer. And that has that Nazi connotation to itself, right? So I've always been highly suspicious of, of being a leader in the first place because of that connotation. Mm-hmm. And I never, I never wanted to be one. And in fact, in, in when I was working in my first um, broadband job at uh, Telecable, I there was a team of folks that were working on building up broadband over cable in my native city of Vienna. And I was part of that team. And the person that was leading the team technically on the left, he was external to begin with. So he wasn't really an employee, he was a contractor. And he left. And then the question is, who will take over that role, right? And it was not so much that I wanted that role, but it was kind of a natural evolution out of the group dynamics of this group that it was kind of consensus that I would be taking over that role, right? I didn't really ask for it, um, um, nor did I resist it, right? It was it just it just happened, if you will. And, and after that, right, it was just more the same. I mean, I, I jokingly keep saying that my career is built on the fact that I'm an engineer who can talk in complete sentences, right? Um, which is which is a skill that is not very uh, very often. And I think I've I've managed to translate the business language and the technology language um, uh, fairly well, which helped me kind of build a bridge between the financial business people and the technologists, which um, certainly has helped my evolution as a leader as well. See, now I'm starting to use that word, right, and despite. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you know, you've, uh, you did a phenomenal job uh, back then in the late 90s when I first got to know you. You're always very articulate. You know, you're also very patient in explaining uh, complex technology into simple terms in the early days of dealing with um, with our board, you know, at, at UPC, and uh, which eventually became Liberty Global, right? So uh, it's, um, it's we've, we've traversed a very interesting pioneering path. Of course, you know, during that time, I had the privilege of getting to know you and... Uh, Technology was something that always you lived and breathed to your earlier point. Share a little bit of that journey of the learnings that you had picked up during those 
eight, nine years of the early development and evolution of broadband in Europe. You know, and you became an amazing thought leader in Europe, not just when we worked together, but, you know, you uh, you held your own much post my uh, moving on from the scene in 2006. So, uh, you know, share a little bit of that journey, Lawrence, if you will. Like, like I said earlier, so I was part of the team in Vienna um, building out the broadband network, right? Um, and in came these um, American cowboys, right? You being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that said, well, that's nice, right? That's looking good, right? Um, guys, why don't we go out there and replicate this um, um, throughout Europe? And one thing that amazed me and continues to amaze me to this very day, right? How you, Sudir, right? As my boss back then, right? Would task... Uh, 28, 29, 30-year-old, not even 30-year-old guy, right, with building out a pan-European network and service infrastructure, right? Flinch uh, <laughs> uh, or hesitate, right? I mean, I, I, I'm still, I still um, I'm mind-boggled by your boldness, right, of, of tasking this young guy, young guy with, um, with with the job like this, and um, and um, I, I was in awe, right? <laughs> I was. Uh, I was um, uh, overwhelmed, right? But um, but it was it was exactly what I wanted. It was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, building infrastructure is, is something that always fascinated me, right? Um, like the whole time of industrialization is something that um, is is mind-boggling to me when we build steel mills and aluminum mills and dams and coal mines, right? But all that stuff had been built, right? So our generation, right? The, the infrastructure of our generation is the internet. And, and I was extremely fortunate, right, to to be um, at the right time, um, in the right place, uh, meeting the right people, like, like yourself, that would give me the opportunity to do that, to build, to build infrastructure. And, and it was crazy days, right? <laughs> I, still, I still remember that uh, we were dropping server farms throughout Europe to, to provide internet services or broadband through what was then United Global Common, to turn become um, Liberty Global. And it was going so fast, right? And money was so plentiful. I'd always um, um, had a, an excess server farm stored away in, in a cabinet. And, and, and cabinet is the wrong word because there was no storage room, right, back then in, in Amsterdam. So um, as, um, as always in technology, the number of men is much higher than the number of women. Uh, we at some point in time decided to occupy one of the latest restrooms um, and use the storage room for, for a server farm that was sitting there and spare to be shipped to the next um, country and deployment. Uh, so it was, it was crazy things like that um, we, we, we did think then. And I, I apologize again to my um, female colleagues who might have had to walk up the floor to, uh, um, to get to the appropriate restroom, but it was the only way we could protect those assets. <laughs> but it was, it was, um, it was a tremendous, um, leap of faith by you and um, and the other senior managers at the time and um, um, we were just um, 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 happy to to be able to give them the toys um, as we felt back then right to um, to build infrastructure and technology and to learn at an amazing pace right this was all new stuff back then always on which is completely natural now was brand new right i mean back then you were dialing in with modems and all of a sudden you had this cable modem was always connected always connecting you imagine i mean all this stuff feels natural to us right now we don't think about it but back then it was a big deal the first the first broadband service we had was 300 kilobits down and 64 kilobits up which was 
ridiculous by today's standards, right? We're talking about gigabits now, right? But back then, damn, 300 kilobits. Are you crazy, man? Right? The stuff you <laughs> with us, right? This was what um, what was, uh, and team, right, um, I've, I've been able to build was of that same attitude, of that same drive and passion and, and love for the subject. And we thrived, right? I mean, up to up to 2001 when we went chapter 11, right? <laughs> but yeah. boy, we did thrive, right? <laughs> um, up, up to that point. So I think that was, and then clearly as we become more mature as a company and as an organization, um, um, the, the challenges changed, right? I mean, um, as you recall, we moved from being the purely IP guys to including telephony as well uh, and video as well to become part of the broader um, um, cable landscape um, to include HFC, the um, the fiber, the hybrid fiber coax networks, to kind of um, broaden our scope. But all of that has always been um, driven by this mass curiosity and this desire to learn and to experiment and to build, right? And um, um, and that's an opportunity we, we've had, and um, we didn't really uh, ask for, but were kind of um, and became part of that because nobody was there who knew how to do it. Um, so I guess there were a bunch of young folks um, that were were brought in and were given the opportunity. And if they succeeded, they were given more opportunity. And if they still succeeded, they would give me more opportunity, right? And along that chain of getting more opportunity and more responsibility, I guess we've been able to climb a few steps. I always uh, credit my success to uh, always uh, bringing in the best of the best and hiring people a lot smarter than I was. And... Uh, a lot more capable than I was, and I, uh, I definitely proved that with you, Lawrence. I always looked at it as a learning opportunity whenever I spent time with you. And of course, uh, you were a lot younger and more energetic than I was. And um, you did a phenomenal job. And I think for a lot of the people, like you said, uh, listening to the show decades later, where broadband is just considered a utility today, and back then, uh, when you were talking, the internet protocol, I remember many times with, within our own leadership structure, people did not want us to even utter that word. They didn't know what it meant. And yet today, uh, that's what the world has pl pl uh, proliferated a lot of uh, uh, the technology that uh, you were one of the pioneers in Europe uh, with your team to to develop and uh, and uh, extensively deploy and uh, I think the technologies were so uh, early and immature uh, which people don't have an appreciation for today there's a lot more maturity in what we do today in technology and software development and, and infrastructure and you had to put up with a lot of arrows in your back as a pioneer in deploying that technology, but you were extremely successful. And Lawrence, I remember you with your team and and many of your colleagues uh, really built a phenomenal IP infrastructure, which ended up carrying megatons of capacity across Europe. Share with us a little bit of some of those those technology challenges and leadership challenges that sometimes kept you awake at night, that made you think a little bit about life and you know many other things. And we'll come. Come a little bit also to your personal life, and I would like to talk, have you talk a little bit about that and your family and and uh, a few things that you learned on on the personal life front. Well, challenges are plentiful, right? 
where to begin? Well, technologically, right? We had we had um, not only once but regularly, right? We were using beta software in our production routers because it was the only way to solve a certain problem, right? And we had we had issues with um, just transporting the complexity of our network, which was pan-European, which was unheard of at the time as well, right? And and I credit again you for that, Sudhir, because no sane European would have come up with the idea of building a pan-European network. What the heck? <laughs> in your own country, right? And then just shut up, right? Um, but uh, as, as an American coming in, I said, well, you know, well, here's a city, there's a city, right? I don't care. There's two borders in between, right? Let's, let's connect. <laughs> and and this, this kind of frame of mind is something transcended from you to, um, um, to me. And then I said, oh, actually, yeah, that makes sense. Why not do that? But there were a lot of challenges there technologically, right? Um, like, like I said, but I mean, um, having having non-production software and our equipment, right, was was not the norm, but happened very frequently. Mm. Uh, there, there was certain infrastructure we would reboot every day at 3 a.m., right, because we know it wouldn't make it through another day, right? Um, because there were memory leaks in the software and it would just explode and would stop working, both on the server side as well as on the router side, right? And we would have little cron jobs that would reboot this thing at 3 a.m. when the damage was leased, right? So you had you probably had a network outage um, every night at 3 a.m., right? But hopefully nobody noticed. And yeah. that was the only way to keep this thing operational and keep it running and at the same time scale it, right? I mean, scale, scale, scale. We were growing already um, significantly back then, but these kind of bandwidths were unheard of, right? I mean, this was dial-up world. So a modem would take 33.6 or 55 kilobits, right? And that was the max it would get. And here we were with 300 kilobit, 600 kilobit, and we're aggregating all that bandwidth, right? And then finding ways to scale the infrastructure, both on the services side as well as on the on the network side, to to go with that pace when everybody else was still in, in narrow band, right? Was was a huge challenge, right? Uh, it was a massive challenge, right? The equipment we used were, were was carrier class equipment for smaller setups uh, um, in the first place. So that is. Um, that, that was a big challenge back then, right? And it gradually got better over the years as, as industry on, on the vendor side caught up with the pace of what we were doing, right? But these were these were kind of um, interesting challenges with um, when something happened, right? You never knew, was it due to a software bug, a hardware bug, your lack of knowledge, right? Or somebody had screwed something up badly in, in, in configuration. So um, it was always a challenge to find out what it was, right? And a lot of times we would actually read up on, on technology and protocols on, on things um, the day before we actually started configuring it, right? Um, in the live network because time wasn't there, right? So what's a lab, right? What's pre-testing, right? Um, um, we just were, we were doing open heart surgery um, every day um, without too much uh, hesitation. And that is where our youth actually helped, right? Because um, had I been 10 years old at the time, I probably would have had too much respect of uh, what's going on and what's doing there. But they said, oh, what the hell, right? We got to do this. Got to be online, right? Got to connect this. <laughs> got to connect another 10,000 customers here or 100,000 there, right? So got to do it. Got to do it, right? Yes, it's 2 a.m. They've never done this before. Let's do it anyways, right? More often than not, it worked, right? Um, which is completely um, ridiculous from today's perspective. But at the time, that was the spirit, that was the mood, um, the mood um, we were operating in. Well, you know, through that process, I think uh, both you and I learned a lot about execution, but share some of the lessons as a leader of what you thought of, you know, the word execution and making things happen. And how did you encourage your teams and what, what does leadership today mean? I mean, you, you went on to to build bigger and better things beyond Liberty Global. And how do you define successful execution as a leader? You know? I think let's, let's start with, with leadership, right? Um, and I think to 
ask you to be a good and successful leader, first and foremost, you have to love people. And, and not every single individual, but as, as, as a ground feeling, as a basic feeling of towards humanity, right? Towards our species. You have to love people, you have to respect them, you have to appreciate them. Um, you have to, yeah, to love them. I think that's, that's, that's exactly the right word. I think that that's, that's a key, that's a key prerequisite from my perspective. Um, to, to be successful because that is that transcends that um, your team your team can feel that you can they, they can they can they can become part of that and they they, they can appreciate that I mean the other thing that I think um, has been on um, the token of success for me is um, to to lay out the vision right to um, to explain where we're going why it's important to go there, or why it's cool, or why it's nice, or why it's, um, why it's um, um, something you want to be, or what something you want to reach, but to, 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 to lay out the vision, to, to explain where you want to go, why you want to go there, right, and to rally the team behind that vision. Um, and then thirdly, to give them um, the, the freedom to, to work within that framework, to remove obstacles for them as far as you can, right? And um, to give them the freedom to be creative, to work toward that vision. Hmm. That is that is what what I found um, throughout my entire professional life to be to be the cornerstones. There's this deep appreciation of people, um, the, the 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 rallying behind a common vision, and it's important that uh, that is a vision that can be understood and that it can be shared, right? Um, um, I, I've been fortunate enough, and I think um, it's kind of probably no coincidence because everybody builds teams in their own in their own shape. But that I've, that I've been able to assemble enthusiasts like myself, right, that just love to do what they do, and then it's easy to to kind of rally people behind this um, this common, in my case, technological visionary goal, um, and say, guys, this is the way. And, and fourth, actually, you have to you have to be able to to be a role model. You can't ask anything you wouldn't be willing to do, right? If you ask your team, right, to pull an all-nighter because something's happening, right, you've got to be sitting there with them, or at least um, they need to be clear that you've done it 25 times before as well, right? You're not asking anything you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. Later on, when, when I got more senior, then obviously um, I wouldn't have been able to do the all-nighter outside of sitting there and drinking coffee because I wouldn't know what to do anymore on those routers, servers, infrastructure, right? But it was clear that um, um, I'd done it myself or I would be doing it myself, right? And leading by example, I think, is absolutely crucial as well, right? because then um, that, I think that's one of the many ways where it transcends that um, um, that you appreciate um, life to do and work with um, with folks and with people. Great insights, Lawrence, and sharing uh, sharing those thoughts on leadership. And clearly, obviously, you know, those go hand in hand with morals and values, you know, and somewhere in in there, those values and morals got inculcated into your thinking very early on from your childhood on and if you can share with with our audience a little bit what those morals and values mean to you and as you've you know shared these insights on leadership no i think i think uh, i briefly touched on those early on when talking about um, um my childhood and being the child of 68 um or the 68 movement if you will right um, um my parents and there's this deep sense of, of fairness and justice, right? Of, um, of everybody being treated equal and fairly, right? This um, deep, gosh, I'm missing the English word, um, the um, objections to the word, um, something you don't like at all, right? Any form of um, racism, anti Semitism, um, classism, right? Um, that it's just, um, 
you got to take people for what they are, people, right? Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter where they were born, right? Um, and what the color of the skin is, right? What language they speak, right? And they are people, right? And you judge them by their own merits and by what they do, right? And they could be, they could be you know, the nicest person in the world, or they could be complete jerks, right? You don't know up front, right? But everybody starts um, with the benefit of the doubt. And um, when I get to know somebody, my first reaction is I trust them, right? Until they prove me otherwise. And that I think that is um, a very fundamental thing of, uh, of my approach to things that I, I want things to be fair and just and, um, and everybody having the, the ability to, to, to succeed and to, to um, build their lives and to, to lead a happy life. Ideally, um, um, it could be coined as um, I want a good life for all. And, and that is something that is kind of a reoccurring theme. Um, um, throughout my life, which sometimes contradicts or interestingly contradicts um, business leader role, right? Because you have to do time things at times that are not good for all. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have to fire people, lay off people is a good example, right? Then um, that would contradict the thought of, um, of wanting to support the morals of a good life for all, right? Um, so that there's contradictions in that um, that you have to be very aware of and very conscious of as you as you steer your professional life. But um, asking about the morals behind it, I think that's um, a, a good life for all is, is, um, is a good summary. Mm -hmm. Thank you again. Um, but let's come a little bit to the personal side of your life. During this very, very busy time of, of your life, you also hit a few roadblocks on the personal side. And share a little bit about you know your family life and how you were aspiring to be a family man and you know, how life's challenges hit some of us and what those adver adversities meant to you. When my wife was um, pregnant, we were or struck by, well, let's call it what it is, a disaster, right? It was a very rare, a very rare um, complication that um, resulted in, uh, in serious health damage for, um, for my wife, which um, all of a sudden put me in the position um, basically overnight, well, literally overnight, right? Actually, literally overnight to, instead of being responsible for two um, and parents being responsible for two kids, all of a sudden I was responsible for three people, right? My wife and the kids and the newborn baby um, while doing uh, a full-time job as um, as the CTO at Kabul Deutschland back then. Um, and that happened overnight, which was um, was a massive blow. Right. Um, all of a sudden, from, from one day to the other, my, uh, my life had changed um, completely. And how you deal with that is, um, is interesting in many ways. Right? Um, but one thing you notice is that um, if something as severe as that happens, you get to see people as they are. So mm -hmm. We all run around the world and life and, um, and we... Um, we, we project an image of ourselves, right? They would like others, others to see, right? I mean, nobody does it intentionally or, 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 or uh, bad, with bad intentions, right? but everybody wants kind of everybody else to see how nice a person, how good a person, how smart a person, whatever we are, right? Um, but these masks drop in, in something that's severe as that happens, and you see people for what they are. And um, their reactions all of a sudden, right, um, are becoming insecure, and you, you do see through... Um, through that role playing that we all do, and it's amazing what you see back then. You see um, nastiness, and you see unimaginable beauty in people. Right? Um, people that um, 
that would um, change the way they organize their lives to be there um, for you and your loved ones. Um, and you will see people that will turn away and go, right? Um, um, so it, it, it teaches you a lot about people and it teaches you a lot about, um, about yourself, right? How, how do you react in a situation like that when from one day to the other, your, your whole life is being turned upside down and um, all the responsibility for, um, for your job and your family um, um, resides on your shoulders and nobody else's. Right? Uh, and that is, that, is, um, that is a massive change. And I was, I was um, fortunate enough to have um, family on both um, her as well as on my side that uh, would, would support us, um, uh, especially in the beginning, would support us massively. And um, and as over the years things have become better, um, clearly that has uh, toned down as well. But um, but this this is a massive change, um, and it changes um, every aspect of life. But it also gives you insights that um, that you that you wouldn't be getting otherwise. It would take you much much longer. But I mean, another example is that when after that happened, I was commuting between Vienna and Munich at the time. And my job was in Munich, and I had this um, I have had this agreement before that I would do um, home office on Fridays. Um, so that thing happened, and, um, and my boss asked me, um, the CEO, um, Adrian, asked me, well, what do I need, right, in this situation, right? Because obviously I had planned to be um, on, on parental leave for three weeks after after the baby was born, and um, um, then I didn't get back to them, so they were starting to get worried, and eventually I talked to my boss and told him what happened, and um, and he said, well, what do I need? And I said, well, number one, I need two more weeks to sort out things, to, to have a nanny, to have um, um, things. And, and the other thing I need is I need to be um, do two days of home office, right? Um, and, uh, and I was the CTO of the company in a massive transition from being an analog cable operator to being a triple and quadruple play operator. So I, I was playing a very important role there in, in this transition, especially on the technology side. And he said, yes, sure. We'll manage. We'll make it work, and 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 he did, right? So you, you would see that um, uh, how people would react to that is um, both on the professional as well as on the, especially on on the, on the private front was um, was very revealing and at the end of the day um, um, extremely encouraging and um, and in a lot of ways um, how should I say. Um, um, even further um, in improving my faith in humanity. Of course, Lawrence, I've, I've known this side of your life and many of the opportunities we've had to share together on a personal basis. Uh, tremendous respect for you as a, as a father, as a caregiver, you know, and uh, you've got beautiful kids and, and a family. But adversity is a teacher for all of us and if we're willing to learn. And I appreciate you sharing those insights of of a very critical time in your life that allowed you to reflect on life a little bit and learn a lot more. I think that's 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 the thing it teaches me, taught me most humility. Right? Don't take anything for granted. Right? Don't take anything for granted. Don't take anything for granted. Don't um, don't take yourself too important. We are we are just a small. A grain of sand, right? In, 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 in the in, in the course of history and in, in the size of this planet, right? And we, we can play our role and we can contribute to it, right? But 
we shouldn't overestimate ourselves, right? And our importance. Um, and so this this focus on ourselves is um, more often than not bad advice, right? Um, we, we are part of a bigger uh, of a bigger system of uh, of people on the one side socially, but also um, of a bigger ecosystem. If you take a look at our planet, right? And um, we we should act like that. We shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. I think that's. Um, that's, uh, it put a lot of things into perspective for me when that happened, a lot of things. Thank you, Lawrence, for sharing that. And, uh, you know, you've uh, you've also had a very successful career and uh, you chose to take a sabbatical from uh, from the success you had at KDG and share a little bit about, uh, you know, you of course, a prolific uh, thought leader in the world of technology. And technology is evolving quite a bit, as we all know. So... Where do you see the future of technology, Lawrence? Headed, uh, you know, there's a lot of great macro trends emerging, a lot of themes emerging, and also through that process, a lot of focus on AI and many other things. If you can share a little bit of your thoughts, that'd be great. The biggest trend I see, and I don't know quite what to make of it, is is a very contradictory trend because. The biggest trend I see is that we need, um, as a species, we need less and less work to produce everything we need. So the, not least through what we've been doing, building out the internet, creating IT, um, productivity has, um, has gone through the roof, right? What a single, a single factory worker, um, the amount of time a single factory worker needs to um, spend to produce a certain good, right? Keeps decreasing, right? So, we are in the weird situation that as, as mankind, we're so productive that uh, we could actually, all of us could work so much less and still produce everything we need, which is, which is weird, right? Because uh, it means in a way that we are kind of rationalizing away work, which also means um, we rationalizing away jobs, which means rationalizing away the money that people would get to buy the stuff we produce. So there's a flaw, there's an inherent flaw in the setup, right? And in the development we're seeing, right? So we become more and more productive, uh, meaning we could actually produce everything we need with less work, right? But by doing so in our current framework, we would also have a lot less people that earn money to buy the stuff in the first place. So there's a contradiction between what people can buy and what people need, right? Um, you can see it in the U.S., but also in Europe, right? I mean, the number of people on food stamps in the U.S. is just astronomical, which is odd, right? Because at the same time, we produce all this stuff, right? So there's an inherent flaw, and I don't quite know what to make of this, right? But that, that's, that's the biggest trend I see. And we have been playing um, uh, a massive role in that through, um, through in this rationalization of work and this increase in productivity by, by the creation of, of broadband and the Internet, right? So we've... Um, and that we've been a grain of sand in this, but we've been we've been part of uh, of, of that wave. So I think that's a big trend that I see. That's kind of a macro trend transcending everything in our global economy. The other thing, and I'm going just um I'm from I don't know the, the hundred thousand feet view and going down to a thousand feet view. Um, the one thing in our industry that I see, um, but that's almost no more forecast, but I'm um, stating the obvious is that the way this is heading is simply um, ubiquitous broadband and um, you. Um, have services on top of that, some of which you pay for, others you don't, right? And that's all that's left, right? So our beloved pay TV industry, right, um, going down the drain, right, if you ask me, right? So it, it, it survives as over-the-top services with new players like um, Netflix, Amazon Prime, et cetera. But 
this is a this is a defense game that um, our former employees um, are playing. I mean, the, the only notable exception there, um, and and I wish him the best because he's like one of the brightest guys in our industry ever, um, Tony Werner, right? Uh, he is playing one hell of a game there with um, with RDK and X1 and 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 transforming the company into into service company to basically be one of those of the top players. But uh, outside of that, right? Gosh, um, this whole thing is. Um, is becoming what you and I always were afraid of, but it's happening. Is becoming a dump pipe, and you pay for some of the services and a freemium model on top of that. So I think this is where it's heading, and um, there, there's no stopping there. So what is so the service side basically goes completely over the top. On the on the network side, you see um, a tighter and tighter integration of fixed and wireless networks. Right, they essentially they're becoming one. Um, they, they've become one for a long time already through from a fixed line perspective through Wi-Fi. Right. So there's a massive amount of wireless networks in every single fixed net operator through their um, their wireless modems. Um, but combine that with the trend of the last five years or so with most operators on the mobile side acquiring fixed line assets or fixed line operators acquiring mobile assets, because this is becoming actually um, more and more intertwined and less and less separable, because um, clearly for all this backhauling of all this capacity, you need to put um, your wireless um, signals onto a fixed line network as soon as you possibly can, right? So all of a sudden, the distinction between wireless, which could be 4G, 5G, whatever, or Wi-Fi, right? Um, and backhauling that into into a wired network is um, is only a gradual distinction, and you need both anyways, right? And that's that's trying to see and I think so. We'll have we'll have essentially um, a race for um, to keep margins, and you mentioned earlier that Robin's more and more of a commodity. Um, to to reduce the price per bit as much as you can, right? Um, I think that is the key objective for most operators. And on the service side, um, some of the brightest and biggest, and um, I mentioned Tony and Comcast there, um, I think stand a good chance to to be part and to be players in that game um, with over-the-top service, right? Um, but uh, most operators won't, and they simply will be able to and will be trying to fight um, for being the lowest cost of bits so they can get the biggest margin out of the commodity of broadband. And it doesn't matter whether it's fixed or, or wireless. I think that that's where it's um, where it's going to. But again, this is more now my, my more down-to-earth uh, observation of a trend um, versus the, the big question mark that I have on the, on the evolution of the global economy. I'm sure you have some thoughts on AI and we could have a complete show uh, talking about technology, you know. I didn't cover that. I'm sorry. Yes. A lot going on in that space too, you know. But Lawrence, we're uh, quickly going to come to a wind of of this uh, program, but uh, I do have a few other questions for you. And there's many things we've learned as leaders, uh, both professionally and personally. And uh, when you close your day at the end of the day, how do you know when you've You've done right when you look at yourself at the end of the day in the mirror. I once read this saying, right, on the T-shirt of a friend of mine, right, which said, in a world where you can't be anything, be kind. Mm. So coming back to your question, if I was kind and didn't piss anybody off, right, I think it was a good day. You definitely worked very hard to, to live that lifestyle in the opportunity I had to, to work alongside you and with you. Uh, it's, uh, I appreciate that. And there's, 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 there's one more. I'm talking about quotes now, right? I mean, there's, I'm, I'm, I've got, got a lot of favorite quotes, right? But another one comes to mind, which kind of contradicts the first one, but it doesn't at the same time. Let me see if I can if I can recall that. It. It's something I read in a book once, right? Um, um, 
be the kind of person that when you get up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, the devil says, oh, crap, he's up. <laughs> That's a very good one. I like that too, right? Because I mean, it's it's um, obviously to 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 fight the devil, if you will. Um, you might piss off a few people as well, right? So, so it's kind of contradictory to the first one, but uh, not everything is without contradictions, right? I mean, and life, as we all know, certainly has its contradictions. This could be one of mine, right? <laughs> Very good one. You know, talking about books, what have you been reading these days? Actually, the, I read a book by a Polish author, uh, writer, um, um, Tomasz Konicz. Um, I don't, I don't think it's been translated to English yet. He, he writes in German, right? And he actually writes about this um, development in the, in the global economy of, of um, our increasing productivity and what that means for the evolution and the development of our economy globally as well as um, locally. It's a very interesting book, right? Um, um, Thomas Kovic is the author. Lawrence, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, spend some time with you. And, uh, you know, thank you for being on the show. But... As we close the show, I, I do have one last question for you. And what do you want people to remember Lawrence Glatz by? Why should they? It's about it's about it's about um, not taking ourselves so importantly. See, like we we are we are at least that that's the humility I was talking about earlier. We are the result of a long chain of generations before us, right? And if we don't screw up that, our planet, then there will be lots of generations after us. And it's only a question of the number of generations into the future you count before we will be forgotten, right? Forgotten in terms of our names and our tasks and what we did. However, we are here and we can make an impact for future generations. And we, we might be able to, and sometimes, um, um, people will remember that for many generations and sometimes they won't, right? But it doesn't change the fact that um, that we've tried to make an impact. Right? I mean, look, look at yourself, Sudir, right? I mean, the, the kindness and your approach to, um, to building and helping people um, is something that maybe four generations from now nobody will remember. But consequences of your actions will still be there. They will be there in your kids and the people you've influenced, the people you've touched, right? Um, the people you've helped. And not because they remember you by name or by what exactly you did, but because by the way they are, because you've influenced them. And by influencing them, you're influencing the future generations as well. So to, to your question, um, I, I don't know what, um, what it is that I would hope people would um, say about me. And I don't think it, it matters as much because eventually it'll be forgotten anyways. But um, um, but I think we will live on in, in the consequences of our actions towards the fellow human beings around us. And I think that's what counts. And it doesn't matter whether people remember um, that Lawrence Glass did this and that, right? Um, if if some of their actions is 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 more kind, is uh, more appreciative, more inclusive, and if I've left an impact on Earth that would nurture that and would change that for a small number of people, I think it would call it a success. Mm, thank you. That is a very deep and powerful insight of of life, and you know, leaving epitaphs that uh, mean something way beyond our lifetime. Thank you, Lawrence, for being on this show. Always a privilege to uh, to learn from you, and uh, and thank you for sharing insights for our audience on this show. Look forward to another one with you.
Well, thank you, Sudhi. And again, thank you so much for having me on this um, show in the first place and for inviting me and, and, and for your friendship, Sudhi. Right? I mean, um, this is honestly an honor to um, to be friends with you and to have a conversation to be invited to this, right? So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I am very grateful for your friendship too, my friend. Sudhir Lorenz Glatz is another one of those pioneers who, as you say, suffered the arrows in their backs so that today we can take for granted broadband internet service. And I love this story of how he realized his future was the internet. As a college student just back home in Austria after studying in California, he was able to log in to check his email on a California school server. It was that moment, he says, he realized the world would change quickly. As for the arrows in his back, I can only imagine the drama of building infrastructure using untested software and equipment because there was no time for testing. That's just how fast the world was changing as you and Lorenz rushed to build Liberty Global throughout Europe. And I was one of those people waiting impatiently for the future to arrive with broadband, so I consider you and Lorenz my heroes. Besides being a technology pioneer, though, Glatz shared his story of his family's challenges. Often we don't hear successful people talking about those tough times, and I'm glad you asked him about it, because there are powerful lessons in what he shared. I also noticed Lorenz mentioned the work of Tony Werner, and our listeners will better understand what Glatz was talking about in our next episode of Cracking the Code.